All right, time to get in the word. My brain is already running into this. This is a, I love Joseph. Um, I have identified with this man in many ways, uh, historically in my own walk with the Lord. Uh, So I greatly appreciate his relationship with God. So let's pray as we uh, open up in prayer. Make your way to Psalm 105. That's where we're going to begin this morning. Psalm 105. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. Lord, I give you thanks for who you are. I give you thanks for creating us. I give you thanks for the relationships that you allow us to have. I give you great thanks for my wife, for my children, for my parents. I give you great thanks for the family, the body of Christ that is in this room. Lord, the body of Christ that you brought across my path in so many different ways to reveal yourself to me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these relationships. As we sit in Joseph this morning, he's a man who had great uh, pain in relationships in life. And through his life, Lord, you've already taught me a lot. You've taught many of us already through his life. So as we sit in in your word, Lord, we're asking for your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to teach us, to reveal your truth to us. Let us see your beautiful son this morning and all things that we do. And through everything, once again, we're asking that you bring yourself glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a bit... It's been like a good month and a half, it feels like, since we've been in Genesis. Uh, But do you remember what we're actually studying? Because it's not Genesis. There you go, Chris. It's Hebrews. In the midst of Hebrews, Hebrews is this letter that is being written to Jewish Christians. And the tendency, the, the reason that the letter is being written is the tendency in this culture is to turn back to the religion and the relationship with God that they had historically. You know, those ruts that we get into. So as these Jews are looking to Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as the Christ, they've been radically transformed and they've been radically changed. And that has great meaning in regards to what the Old Testament is teaching the Jews throughout their history and what they would have grown up with. But their tendency is that they're turning away from the Lord back to a religious legal-based system rather than the freedom that's been provided in Jesus Christ. So the umbrella of the letter of Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's better than your religion. He's better than all aspects of your religion, which is what Hebrews is walking us through. But we put that into our context today. He's better than the religion religion of your parents. He's better than your culture. He's better than anything else that you want to reach out and say, this is where I will find life. This is where I will find happiness. The argument of Hebrews, Jesus is better than whatever that is. So once the, once the letter comes into Hebrews 11, it begins talking about faith, our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then in Hebrews 11, it's walking through all these Old Testament characters. They didn't know the name of Jesus, but they knew the person of Jesus. Because we see the person of Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. Even as we look at Joseph's life, we're going to see images and types that point us to circumstances in Christ's life. That reveal to us his nature, his character, who he is as our Savior. Powerful. But in that... 
before we get back into Genesis and begin Joseph's life in Genesis 37, I want to bring us here to Psalm 105. Because this is what we're going to come back to week after week as we spend, I think it's like 10, 12 plus chapters of Joseph here at the end of Genesis. Gives us a theme for his life and for our own. So beginning in Psalm 105, verse 16, and we're going to go through this slow. It says, moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. So stop. He is God. So the beginning of this psalm, praising God for who he is, for what he's done, calling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now it's getting into that point of the narrative that we're going to sit in as we get into Joseph's life, that God is the one who called for a famine. God is the one who destroyed all the provision in Jacob's life and his son's life that forced him to go to Egypt to find food. Now, does that make you uncomfortable in any sense of the word? God called for a lack of food. God called for the destruction of provision. Have you ever had anything taken away from you by God? And if you cried out to God in anger, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I don't understand. You promised to provide for me. You promised to hear my prayer. I am praying to you right now, and all I feel is like I'm hearing silence. Do you care? Jesus, you're asleep in the boat. Don't you see that we're sinking? Don't you care about my life? Is that just me or have you had those kind of conversations with the Lord? Where are you? He's right there always. And a theme through Joseph's life that we're going to see repetitively, it comes up over and over. God was with Joseph. Our God is in this room right now. And if you can't feel him, if you can't hear him, if you can't sense him, if you don't have that understanding, it's a, faith, it's, a, it's a matter of faith. Understanding who this being is who has created the heavens and the earth, he is in control of every aspect of our life. And again, this, this verse 16, this can, you can sit in a lot of in pain in this. This, this uh, answering this question for a lot of people, this is why they reject God. If God is good, then why this? So they sit in this argument, if God let that happen, then I don't want to worship your God. But that means that they don't understand his nature and the character. They're, they're answering the why question, why did God do this, without understanding who he is as holy and pure and compassionate and kind and gentle. And he's done everything to provide for us and will do everything to provide for us. Yet, in the midst of that, he often does things that we don't understand. And he's doing something in Joseph's life that we're going to witness as we go through the word that in the midst of it he doesn't understand but at the end of it it's hindsight he can look back and see what God has done so verse 17 it says God so he sent a man before them Joseph who was sold as a slave God is the one who allowed Joseph to be sold as a slave this is what we're going to sit in Genesis this morning and look at the pain verse 18 they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in iron, so he was shackled 
He was in pain. He was being tortured. I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to be shackled with chains and to walk with these iron fetters. And God, where are you? Look at verse 19. This is what we're going to keep coming back to in his life. It says, until the time that his word, lowercase being Joseph's word, and we'll sit in that word this morning, until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Double underline that, circle it, highlight it, however you mark your Bible. The word of the Lord tested him. Have you ever been tested by the word of God? Has God ever given to you a specific promise for your life? Or it could be, we could sit in his overall context. God has promised to each and every one of us, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven you. I will take up residence and dwell in you for all eternity. And because I'm at home in you and because you're my child, as often as you pray to me in the name of my son, I will hear you and I will respond to you. That's the word of the Lord. Have you ever felt tested in that? Have you ever cried out for God to help, for help and all you've heard is silence? Has God ever given you a promise in a relationship, in a job, in a circumstance of life where you know this is what the Lord is directing me to do right here, right now. This is what he has promised for me. And then God just appears to wait and do nothing and not respond. There's a hope. It's, it's still in the future, but until it comes to fulfillment, it's a constant testing. Do you feel tested in the proclamation that God has forgiven you of your sins? How hard is it to forgive yourself of the sins that you've committed against God? If I can't forgive me, how can God forgive me? His word is spoken. His word is true. And there's a testing in that in life. So we're going to sit in this constant test in Joseph's life. And I can tell you from a historical context, especially like in our, in our journey, Julie's and my journey out of Salt Lake, this is when, this is the first time that I remember this passage. I think that it came up in a devotional for me, but God had spoken something for me to do, and it was to leave Salt Lake. And at that time, we thought it was Norway. Crazy, but God, I will trust in you. I will do what you're telling me to do. But he gave me instruction, and then life started not to look like what I thought that it was going to look like, what I expected it to look like. So ultimately, his word was continually testing me. Did God really say that? Did he really speak it to me? Is this what he really wants me to do? Did I make the wrong decision? Constant, am I going to trust God? Am I going to jump ship and go do my own thing? Or am I going to continue aiming straight ahead, following the Lord in my life? And as we aim following Jesus Christ, every single one of us is going to be continually tested. I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years, and I am just beginning to be comfortable with the tests. Just beginning to be comfortable with, Lord, thank you for testing my faith. Because I know that in the test, you're trying to, take, you're trying to extract out of me what doesn't belong here. You are trying to press into me. You were trying to conform me into the image of Christ. You were trying to make me look like your beautiful son in the midst of that test. 
So those testings, it provides perseverance and character and hope. And I mean, we go on down through what he is doing in our lives. It's often through the test. It's not through the mountaintop experiences where everything's great and we're skipping along with the Lord. It's when we're in those valley positions of, do I really believe this? Did Jesus really create the heavens and the earth? Did this man really die for my sins? Did he really resurrect from the dead? Is he really seated on his throne at the right hand of his father in heaven? Is he really coming back for me? When I take my last breath, am I really gonna wake up and look at him face to face? Is there a day coming when this corruptible body that is decaying is going to put on an incorruptible body for all eternity and dwell in his light? Do you feel tested in those things? Does your culture test you? Does your household test you? This is, this is what it means for the word of the Lord to test us. He gives us promises. He tells us what to do. He expects us to obey in faith in the midst of this test. And I can tell you right now, it's not just historical stuff. I'm making a change in my life right now where it's based upon the direction and the promises of God. That is what is enabling me to have joy and to have peace in the midst of the change. But I know, my Lord, I know what's coming down the path. I know that this decision that I've made, it's going to be tested. It's going to feel as though I've made the wrong decision. Attacks are going to come in different ways. I'm going to look at a lack of provision or a lack of, Lord, where are you in this thing? And I'm going to have to cry out to him in prayer, Lord, I believe in you. Do your work, do it in your timing, do it in your way. And this is an umbrella over Jacob's life. Not Jacob's, Jacob's life too, but Joseph's life as we get into it. So Genesis 37, we're going to read the entire chapter and then we'll back up. It says, now Jacob, Genesis 37, 1, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to him, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his, father's re and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. 
Verse 12, then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent them out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness and do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring, back, bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many covers that was on, colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. Nice guy. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him, uh, lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. But Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they set the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn in pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him, now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So here we have this transition in, in the book of Genesis. As we've been walking through Genesis so far, especially since chapter 12, we have God calling Abraham. And then the promised son Isaac in Isaac's life. And then in Jacob's life. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these men are known as the patriarchs. 
So in those passages that we've already sat in, God manifested himself, physically appeared, clothed himself in flesh, and appeared to each one of these men in their different context, and gave to them, originally to Abraham, a covenant and a promise, this is what I am going to do for you. Confirmed that with Isaac, confirmed it with Jacob. Now as we stand in the son's life, the children of Israel, as we sit in Joseph's life, Joseph's not a patriarch. God never appears to him like he did to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just like he doesn't appear to us like he appeared to them. He's already given the promise. He's already confirmed it with those three men. And we see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob repeatedly referred to as their God. The God in whom we believe. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Yes? So again, as we sit in Joseph's life, there's a transition here, a major transition happening in the narrative. But what's the testimony that we get immediately? So here's Jacob dwelling in the land, and he's dwelling by Hebron. So when he sends Joseph to go after the brothers, it says that he sends them out of the valley of Hebron. So earlier on, at the end of chapter 35, we see that Joseph, or sorry, Jacob, And Esau came to bury their father Isaac in Mamre, which is Hebron. But we know from the chronology of things, Isaac is still alive. So Jacob, with his family, is dwelling in the area where his father Isaac is still alive and dwelling in. And I'm bringing this up because Joseph is only 17 years old. What he knows about the God who created the heavens and the earth, what he knows about the God of his dad, Israel, is what his dad has communicated to him. It's what his grandpa, Isaac, has communicated to him. He's 17. We're told that he's a favorite son, so we're going to sit in that in a minute. But as a relationship between Joseph, his son, and Jacob, his father, you know that there were many conversations. They didn't have TV. They didn't have all these other distractions. You can imagine after while eating the evening meal, while evening, eating the morning meal or the afternoon meal, whilst gathered around together as a family at night that Jacob is rehearsing and recounting, this is who God is. This is what I did to my brother. This is what I did to my dad. This is the journey to Laban. This is how I picked up all these women. This is where all you kids came from, right? He's recounting these, the account of his life. This is who God is. This is what he promised me in Bethel. This is how he brought me back into the land. This is who God, this is the God that I wrestled with that changed my name to Israel. So everything that we've already sat in, in Genesis thus far, this is what Jacob, his dad, is teaching his son. So that here, again, we're watching a 17-year-old young man. How many of you guys interact with 17-year-olds on a constant basis? High levels of maturity? I got a 15-year-old son in the room. I have an 18-year-old daughter in the room who we have constantly instructed in the Lord. They've been brought up to know Jesus. They've been brought up with a husband and wife that love one another according to the name of Christ. They've watched us succeed. They've watched us fail. They've watched us repent. They've watched us forgive. They've watched us cry out. They've watched us on our journey. They've watched us. My daughter's going to college as an 18-year-old in a month and a half. 
out of the house, just like Joseph. He's, he's sent out as a slave, but he's sent out on his own, away from his family. And this is the constant testimony that we have of his life. He pursued his dad's God because God wasn't just his dad's God. The God who created the heavens and the earth was his God. If we watch the strength of character, Daniel's another young man to sit in his life. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You watch these men get stripped of their families and their culture, made eunuchs in the land of Babylon, get taught by the ways of Babylon and remain faithful to the Lord powerful. I mean, I'm looking at my children right now. Joseph needs to be a hero for you. He's one of my heroes in regards to the temptations that he faces, the bitterness and the hurt that he has to process through. We watch all this emotion come out of him later on. But in the midst of his relationship with God, he sees him there with him. Even as he's being hurt by the chains and the fetters. I'm sure he had multiple struggles that we don't know anything about. Times of crying out to the Lord, why, where are you, help, I need you. But he watches God repetitiously, not just show up in his life, but make himself known and apparent in his life because he's always there. He's always there, the 17-year-old young man. But in this context, we have his relationship with his brothers is off. And it's off, one, because there in verse 3, it says that Israel loves Joseph more than all of his children. This is a, an error and a sin that his own parents sat in. His, Jacob's mom loved him more. Jacob's dad loved his brother Esau more. And now we watch him repeating the same behavior. So he is... Um, not just in action, but in his mind, in his heart. He loves Joseph. He cherishes Joseph. He sacrifices for Joseph above all the other siblings. Automatically, dad is creating conflict in his house. And we've already sat in this household a lot. There is a lot of dysfunction, a lot of sin, lots of issues going on here that all the kids are picking up on. In this position of love, there's also Joseph is wired just as a natural leader in who God has made him, something that we watch him be successful in his entire life. And that's this purpose of this tunic, this garment. His dad has given him clothing, so that on the outside, everybody will recognize that Joseph is the one that's in charge of the brothers. The brothers are in the work clothes and Joseph is in the suit. That's what this, that's what this garment that dad has provided. If it's, if it's actually dealing with a multicolored garment, then the idea is most of the garments, they're going to look like the sheep and the goats. They're brown, they're white, they're black, they're the color of the animal. A garment that has been dyed, it's going to be, in, it's, it's an elaborate garment. It's a status garment. It sets him apart even further from his brothers. And not only just sets him apart as a gift, but it sets him apart in authority over them. So in that relationship and authority over them, he's already been hanging out with some half-brothers. So the sons of Bilhah are Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah are Gad and Asher. 
And as he's hanging out with these brothers, as he is supervising those brothers, he comes back to dad and gives dad a report that, they, you know, they're whatever, they're messing around, they're not doing their job, dad. And you, as owner, need to know. So one, Joseph is doing his job as he's assigned, but in the midst of the job that he has to do, it's automatically creating further conflict. And in this conflict that is going on, not only do the brothers already have jealousy and hatred from the beginning, but their hatred is something that is growing. Their envy and jealousy is growing. Their bitterness is growing. It's not something that they're dealing with in their own relationship with God. It's something that they're allowing to grow and develop in their lives. Joseph continues to complicate this with the dreams that he has. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't tell us that God gave to him these two dreams. But clearly, God is behind the scenes here. God has given him these dreams. And then we have to sit in. All right, Joseph's a 17-year-old guy. And I've said I've grown in my maturity in the Lord and just maturity in age. When I was young in the Lord and I f- first read this, it's Joseph speaking the truth. God gave him a dream. All he's doing is communicating the truth to his family. What's the big deal with that? Why does everybody have to say that Joseph is being arrogant and all this kind of stuff? Well, I said that when I was young. Now that I'm getting older, I can kind of see the, you know, he's not using discretion in his words. He knows the tension. He knows he's the favorite son. He knows he's the second youngest son who is in a position of authority over his brothers. He knows the tension. So for him to come out and say, hey guys, guess what I dreamed last night? Come here, guess what? God told me that not only am I your boss and your supervisor right now, but there's a day coming when you are gonna bow to me. So his dreams that who gave? God's given him these dreams. So again, we can point God to the finger at God. God is the one that's stoking a lot of the tension here. And we'll get into the reason why later on. But God's moving. God is doing. There's all the worldly relationships that are going on on the surface that each one, you and I, are accountable to our Lord for the relationships that we have. Whether they're tense, whether they're at peace. But here it's love, it's status, it's dreams, and now the words that are coming out of his mouth. Even though those words are true, they're welling up hatred. They're welling up bitterness in the family towards him. And in the midst of this, this gets to verse, I need my glasses. This gets to verse 18, and this is where I want to sit for a minute. And this is another thing to underline, to bracket, to circle, however you mark your Bible. It says that they saw him afar off. Now, this is dealing with physical distance. Joseph is coming to him, and the brothers, they see him coming from a distance. But it also gives us a picture and a snapshot of the brother's heart towards Joseph. And this is their major issue. And this is our major issue in the relationships that we have with other human beings. We see people from a distance. The only being that knows me better than me is God. And he knows everything about me. He sees all my hidden things that I'm not even self-aware of. 
The only human, the, the singular human being that knows the most about me is my bride. My parents know a lot about me. My kids know a lot about me. But if you want to really know who I am from somebody else's perspective, you'd want to go and interview Julie. But every single one of us, as we have relationships with one another in different capacities, there's different distances in the intimacy that we have with one another. If we only know each other superficially, you don't get to know what's deep inside. You don't get to know what I struggle with. You see some flaws in me. I probably see most of those flaws myself, and I'm probably a lot more aware of those flaws and others than you're aware of in my life like you are in your own. But it's very easy to just run across my path superficially and pass off judgment, to see me from a distance and start to have a conspiracy in your own mind in regards to my life and my context and my behavior as I'm interacting with you. And I got all these fingers pointing back at me because I do the exact same thing to you. As we walk alongside of each other in life, we see each other from a distance. And if we want to really know what's going alongside, going on in, in each other's lives, if I really want to be your brother in Christ, I need to draw near. What's going on? This is, this is what you said, and I don't need to sit there and go through my list of how I interpreted what you said or, what's I saw, or what I saw and behavior and those kinds of things, but... Is there, is there something going on here? Are we, are we often something? Did I say something? Did you do something? Again, this, this is the, the conflict. As we're sitting there talking about marriage, you're in intimacy with one another. You do things that, and say things that put each other off. And it's very easy to sit at a distance and, well, this is why. And I'm, I'm great at this. I am, I am great in my flesh at imagining things that are not real. And I get myself in trouble all the time. And I always, I gotta, I'll do this with Julie, I do this with other people. This is what I did, and this is what they said, and this is what I'm thinking, and this is what I think that they're doing, and then I actually have a conversation with my wife or with whoever, and it's, it's, it's like, what was real has nothing to do with what was churning around inside of this noggin. So again, what, what I want to camp here in, in Joseph's life in the damage. Look at, look at, and I titled this morning's message, Conspiracy. Look at the violence, the ruthless violence pouring out of his brothers towards him. Eight men. We can, we can Benjamin's not there. Uh, Reuben and Judah are offering some other solutions here. So the other eight brothers, right? Is my math right or is that seven brothers? That's four, seven brothers, right? Seven, because we got to include Joseph, right? Is my math right? Seven or eight. I'm not going to do the math. Okay, those guys, they're ruthlessly violent. Ruthlessly violent. Their hatred and their envy and their jealousy at dad's love, their jealousy at his authority, their jealousy at his dreams, their jealousy at his words have them justified in their heart. That is worth that guy's death, my brother. And this is where we sit in the conspiracy against Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus' brothers culturally of the tribes of Israel 
when he is there, this is the same conspiracy against our Lord and Savior. That man will not rule over me, kill him. But it's ruthless and painful. Later on, in chapter 42, verse 21, out of the mouth of the brothers, this is, we'll sit in this context later, it says, we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. So as we're in relationships with other people, as we see people from a distance, we see anguish going on, we see pain going on. There's, there's so many uh, relationships that there's so much tension between because we won't just come together and have a humble, loving conversation in Christ. When those conversations happen, God brings so much reconciliation and redemption. They're beautiful. I've sat in those things personally many times. But here, it's not we're going to sit together in love and we're not going to sit together as brothers and sisters of the same family in Christ. We're going to stand afar off. And when we stand afar off, this is where all the emotion of bitterness, this is where the imagination of this is what they're thinking, this is what they're doing, this is why they did it, this is how they did it. All of those things are sitting there churning. Our flesh is on, running on. The enemy is sitting there running against us, trying to keep us separated and going in that direction. And here it's in those things, usually we're angry, we're hurt. We don't want to see truth. We don't want to change. We're justified. So here, the brothers are willing their own heart. They are the ones that have let their hearts get to the point of let us kill him. Even though he is, can you imagine as, the, as he is being sent off with these traitors in shackles, the brothers are listening to him cry out. What have I done? Don't do this. Help me, don't. Crying to them for his life. And they close their ears to reconciliation, to restoration. You're dead to us. Ruthless violence of the brothers. The conspiracy to kill him. Reuben, on the surface, it seems like Reuben's doing a good thing. Like the other brothers, your violence, that's wrong. Uh, Simeon and Levi are probably leading the crowd in this because of what they did earlier on in Shechem. Reuben comes and delivers his brother out of their violence. Just put him in this pit. They'll put him in the pit. I'll come and get him later so that I can deliver Joseph back to dad. So on the surface, that seems good. But ultimately, it comes out of his mouth that when Joseph is gone, his question is, where am I going to go? Now, remember, Reuben is the one who has already slept with one of his dad's wives because he's trying to seize authority. Just in this culture, we already sat in all the weirdness that's going on there, the sin that's going on there. So Reuben, his, his interjection here, it's not for the benefit of Joseph, it's for the benefit of self. And same thing with Judah. And Judah's just sitting there, they're, all, they're, they're brothers in a pit, and who knows how much distance they have as he's crying out to them for help, and they're just happily enjoying a meal. I think my stomach would be churning at this point. I want to be able to eat very happily. But they see these traitors. And out of Judah's mouth is what? Let's not kill them. 
There's no profit in killing them. Let's get some cash out of this. Which, who has the same name in the New Testament as Judah? Judas. What did Judas do to Jesus? Sold him for some cash. 30 shekels of silver in the New Testament for Christ. Here, Judah selling his brother for 20 shekels of silver. Divvying it out amongst the brothers doesn't go very far. Bet that cash was very bitter to them over time as, as we watch the relationship later on. But when they come to Jacob, they've already gone through the whole conspiracy. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to say. They put the plan into motion. The brother is sold off. They have the tunic. They slaughter an animal. They, they dip that tunic in that blood. So they're preparing all the evidence. And then they bring that garment to dad. And they don't tell Jacob what happened. What do they do? They're leading him. Let dad come to his own conclusion so he doesn't question anything else. But dad, this is, this is what we found. Does, 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 this, does this belong to your son? And what does Jacob say? Without a doubt. That's my son's. Without a doubt. My son has been torn by the beasts. Without a doubt, my son is dead. Is Jacob's conclusion truthful? Is Joseph dead? Joseph's not dead. Is his conclusion reasonable? Yes, based upon the evidence that's been given to him, based upon his perspective and knowledge of what's happened, the conclusion that his son is dead is very reasonable. And this is getting back to seeing people afar off. The conclusions that we have about people that we interact with most of the time, they're very reasonable conclusions. Here's the evidence that has been presented to you. Here's the circumstance that has occurred and that's being presented, what you know. And I'm rational. I have a relationship with the Lord. I know what his word says. I know what's true. I know what's right. And here's my intelligence and how I'm putting the puzzle pieces together of what's going on here. And my conclusion is reasonable. And I can't tell you how many times I have been flat wrong in regards to reality when it comes to my relationships with other human beings. And this, for me, this is why communication is so necessary. Part of, part of marriage, my maturity of growing up in my marriage with Julie is not assuming what my wife thinks. Her face may be telling me one thing, and this is what I'm interpreting, and it's a very reasonable conclusion based upon the expression that she's given to me. But what's going on inside of her mind and her heart is somewhere totally else in reality other than the conclusion, my reasonable conclusion. I'm still learning, but I'm getting much better at, hey, this is the, are you thinking this, or what's going on here? And then, oh, you're mad at somebody else, not me. Praise the Lord. Y'all with me here? 
But here's, here's the, the, uh, the major conversation of relationships going on in Jacob's life. There's damaged relationships. And the damage that's in these relationships is very real based upon the human behavior as they've interacted with one another. And then because of lack of communication, because lack of truth, the damage keeps increasing. The bitterness keeps growing. The hatred grows to where I don't want to talk to this person. They, I know that they're a Christian, but as far as I'm concerned, they can just drop dead and go see Jesus. I don't want anything to do with them. Do you know any Christians like that? Have you ever been in that position? Has anybody, has a brother or sister ever hurt you? I have hurt people. Unintentionally, as a follower of Jesus Christ, my mouth and my actions might as well be hatred. It's not intentional. I don't intentionally hate people. But I've done a lot of things just in relationships that's been hurtful to others. And then I get to sit back, I get to praise God for the healing of those relationships. I've had other people hurt me where it's, it's taken years for reconciliation to happen. And it's been so sweet and so beautiful when that reconciliation does. I've sat in my own mind and just kicked the crap out. Sorry for that. Just beat people up in my mind. Um, just write violence, ruthlessly violent to people in my mind because of what they've done to me. Knowing that it's wrong, enjoying it knowing that I need to roll this emotion back to the Lord in prayer. God, take this out of me. Extract out of my heart and my mind this bitterness and this anger. Restore this relationship, Lord, in your timing. They hurt me. God, don't kick their teeth in. But be gentle and compassionate and patient with them, just as you are with me. Thank you for how you've changed my heart, Lord. Would you change their heart? Would you provide that opportunity for a conversation? Turn to Jeremiah 29, and this is where we're gonna end. Worship team, come on up. This is uh, another one of this. It's the same kind of idea where we're beginning in Joseph's life, where we're, we're watching his faith in God. We're watching him grow and mature, make his own mistakes, and watch him also flourish in that relationship with God. We're seeing that God's given to him a dream for the future. We're watching this dream test him because the event that just happened, him being sold into slavery, is in total contrast to the authority that has been promised to him over his brothers. How is God's word going to come about now? His word is going to test him. We're going to watch him in shackles. We're going to watch the cycle of his life and everything that he goes through. He has to sit and my brothers, they didn't know me. They didn't understand me. And he's going to have his own testing of his brothers later on. But each of us, as we apply this in our life, as we apply this in the relationships that we have, especially with those whom we have the most intimacy with, know that the word of God is going to continually test you. Do you know what Jesus has told you in regards to resolving conflict? with brothers and sisters in Christ? If you've done something to somebody else, go and make it right. 
If somebody has done something to you, you go to them and make it right. Pursuing a conversation, again, sometimes it's, it's you have to wait for the Lord to open that door of opportunity. But still, in the midst of that, you're trusting in the Lord. Jesus, in you, this relationship can be made whole. Do you believe that promise? If you believe that promise, until reality happens, you're going to be tested. And this is where we began, where God is the one who called for the famine. God is the one who called for even Joseph. He's sending him ahead. But God, couldn't you just give me a plane ticket to go to Egypt? I mean, did you have to put me in shackles, right? But God's plan is perfect. And this is where we want to sit in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is a, this is a famous passage. You should recognize at least a line here. But this is Jeremiah through the Lord is writing a letter to the Jews that have been taken captive to Babylon. They are now slaves in Babylon, just like Joseph is now a slave in Egypt. God says, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. Why? I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and hope. And this is where we sit in those things that people do to us, those things maybe that we've done to others, those things that God has allowed to happen in our lives. The word God out of his mouth declares, my thoughts towards you are not evil. Do you believe it? Yes. Are you being tested in the reality of that? Because your circumstance, you may not feel very loved. My thoughts are peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then, listen, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. You will search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to a place, to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. I don't know if you have cried out to Jesus Christ as your Savior. This is, this is where we talk about, like, this is faith. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any other world philosophy that could be handed to you. Jesus is better than any religion. Jesus is better than any church. Jesus is better than any relationship that, you're, that may be tense, that you think if you have that relationship, then I will be happy. Jesus is better than all the sins that you're trying to hold on to, those things that are just weighing you down and you don't have the freedom and liberty that is promised by God. You're being tested in that. God, you've promised me liberty. You've promised me freedom. Where is it? We are promised, every single one of us, if you look to Jesus for salvation, salvation for what? to be saved out of death, 
to be saved out of sin and its consequences, to be healed, to be restored, to be revived. This is why we gather in here week after week to remind ourselves as believers already of who it is that we believe. And our hearts cries for each one of you to make that your own step of faith. God, I don't understand what's going on in my life. I don't understand why I exist. I don't understand why all the sin is in the world. I don't understand the cross. I don't understand the resurrection, but I believe, Lord, save me from me. Save me from my sins. Don't leave this room without doing that. And listen, if, this is, if, that's, if you're not ready to cross that line today, keep coming. Pursue those who will love you in a godly way who will take you and let me show you the God in whom I believe. Let me show you Joseph's God. Let me show you how powerful he is. Let me show that in spite of all the pain that that man suffered, God was with him. We'll keep pointing you to Jesus. For those of you who are believers that cry out, is your faith being tested right now? Like, are you struggling in something? A circumstance, a relationship, a hurt, an unknown, where your faith feels small and your faith feels weak. Child of God, stand up in faith and confess to him, Jesus, my faith is weak. I can't see. I don't understand. This hurts. I am in pain. The bank account's draining. The energy is gone. This is the way this relationship has always been. I don't see, there's no light. That person, they're not gonna change. I need you to change me, Lord. Take your heart, take your mind, take your life and, full, and fully, fully pursue him in faith. Even when that faith says, I'm not sure why, but God, I trust in who you've proclaimed yourself to be and demonstrated yourself to be. So church, let's stand and just pour forth our worship and our praise, whatever that looks like for the next few songs.